Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. What is natural wine? Is it the same as organic wine or raw wine? Well, the answer is no, but the fact is that natural wine is already having a bigger and bigger impact on the broader winemaking world. And as evidence of this, I would invite you to take a look at how many winemakers are using the phrase and talking about minimal intervention. But in today's episode, you are not only going to learn the difference between organic wine and natural wine and raw wine, you are going to meet two amazing sisters that together have created Cork Restaurant and Natural Wine Shop, which is Vermont's first and only natural wine shop and restaurant. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was in Stowe, Vermont, had an excellent dinner at Cork and sampled a variety of natural wines. And then the next morning, I went back to Cork to, well, record this conversation. And I sat down with Danielle and Katie Nichols to get this fantastic introduction and overview of natural wine, to learn why Danielle and Katie are so passionate about it, how they in fact got into this world, and how they've also managed to create one of the best restaurants in Stowe while continuing their mission to introduce more and more people to this world of natural wine. Now, a couple of things before we get started here. I am certain that many of you listening to this are going to want to check out some natural wines for yourself, and Cork does offer a subscription wine club. So if you'd like to receive wines that Katie has personally selected and written about for the Cork Wine Club, well then sign up for it, or you could also give it as a very cool gift to the wine lovers in your life. So we will include a link to the Cork Wine Club in the show notes of this episode. So go check it out. Another, I don't know, kind of important note here is that while we were not drinking wine during the recording of this conversation, because it was like 9 a.m. in the morning, well, we did keep the conversation going long after we stopped recording. And then, you know, the clock struck noon and then Katie did start pouring some wines. And I just feel like that is fitting and good for you to know, because on a day filled with so much wine talk, you got to drink some wine, too, I think. And that was done. Now, last thing, we published on our website yesterday another excellent piece in our new open mic series where we invite prominent people in the outdoor industry to simply say whatever it is that they have to say and want to share with us. And yesterday, it was professional skier Sander Hadley's turn, and Sander wrote a terrific piece called Fathers and Sons. And I would strongly encourage you to check out Sanders' piece, as well as the other contributions in this new open mic series. We're really proud of them. I think you are going to really enjoy them. And we're off to a really strong start to this new open mic series. So we'll include a link to that open mic series in the show notes of this episode as well. And with that, let's go ahead and talk to Danielle and Katie Nichols of Cork. And while you listen, take a look at their website, corkvt.com, 
where you can see some of the beautiful dishes that they serve up at Cork and see some of these natural wines that we're going to be talking about too. All right then, here we go. Well, I am very happy to be here in Stowe, Vermont at Cork with Danielle and Katie. First question. I heard from you two like 20 minutes ago, there is such a thing as breakfast wine. We are not currently drinking breakfast wine, but tell me more about what distinguishes breakfast wine from just, you know, wine. Should be drinking breakfast wine. I was going to say that, yeah. (laughs) I mean, brunch wine is the best. You know, some light pink fizz, lower alcohol, with a little bit of kiss of sweetness on the finish. Perfect for waffles and whipped cream. So wait a second, though. Brunch is a thing where people kind of conventionally, there might be some, you know, a bubbly kind of thing. A mimosa, a bellini. This would be the same kind of thing, except without the fruit juice added. So that's it. Breakfast wine isn't really a thing. You just call it that. There are wines that we sell that we feel are more suitable (laughs) drunk in the morning. But you can drink them anytime. Wait, more suitable if you're drunk in the morning or to get you drunk in the morning? To drink in the morning. Okay, to drink in the morning. Yeah. Okay. Katie, putting you on the spot, give our listeners one go-to breakfast wine recommendation. Uh, Rendart Fash um, Bougie Cerdon. Bougie is literally in the title? Yes. Yeah. Bougie's literally in the title. Well, this seems to check out. It's really good. Okay. Yeah, I think it's like 10.5% alcohol. Nice and low. It's got okay. a like little residual sugar to it. It's beautiful. It's like, Say yeah. the name one more time. Rendart Fash. Bougie Cerdon. Bougie. My bougie breakfast wine. All right. Brunch wine. Brunch wine. Okay. Um, well, you know, maybe another time because we're just, we're just doing coffee here and, uh, which, you know, no complaints. Nice coffee, by the way, Katie. Oh, thank thank you. you. Yeah. Next question. What is cork? So, um, we open cork as a wine retail store and bar, uh, 10 years ago in Waterbury as a place to make wine approachable, friendly, fun, we opened the Stowe location in 2015, and Katie was working in Boston at the time and um, was willing to come back to be the general manager of Cork and Stowe as long as we became a 100% natural wine um, operation. Oh, so there was a there was a mandate. There were stipulations here. Time. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And we had partially delved into the world um when we opened when we owned waterbury um but not 100 percent. so um we kind of shifted gears to the full natural program in 2015 gotcha how do you two know each other (laughs) we're sisters oh um okay sisters who grew up in stowe in stowe Mm -hmm. yep um grew up in stowe i'm uh, 13 years older than Katie. She used to spend summers with me in California, the ski racing coach out there. And um, I was traveling around, um, decided when I moved back here, I didn't want to be a ski coach anymore. So I opened Cork and um, 
not with any real wine experience, only that I like drinking it and I traveled around to a lot of cool parts of the world where there was wine. There's always wine where there's skiing. So um, I opened this place and um, learned a lot along the way. And then Katie was living in Boston. Well, I just graduated from Boulder and you had gotten pregnant with your daughter. And so I started working for her right after college, just bartending, make some money. I was planning to move back to Colorado and um, turns out I was able to sell wine. And I took the Meinklang Bergenland Red and was able to put it in people's glasses for a lot of different styles that people were looking for. It was a really interesting wine and just kind of had a lot of fun, like playing around with it. So I worked there for two years and then moved to Boston. My husband was at graduate school and worked at the wine bottega in on Hanover street, worked for Carrie Platt and Matt Molo who owns, um, Selectio Naturale import imports. So I was there for about two years and then she was opening cork in Stowe and I was ready to move home. Boston was not my jam. I was pregnant again. Oh, and then that. So I, was, I needed I was, someone. I was about to make a joke about your allegedly very attractive husband. This is what, this is the story I've been hearing. So, I mean, how could, I mean, yeah. it's. Yeah. So over my second location, seven months pregnant. So Katie, um, Katie swooped in to run the place. Yeah. Um, we started out as same program, like wine bar with small plates and a retail store. Danielle was the first person in the state to put the two businesses under one roof. So wine shop and restaurant. So coming and, from California, you can do that. Uh-huh. Their, their liquor laws are different. And I got to Vermont and I said, this is what I want to do. And the department of liquor was like, you cannot do that. Like, well, what if I do it this way? This guy, Martin, he's the best. He's probably six, five gun on his hip, very intimidating guy, but big teddy bear. And I just kept asking him questions. I was like, what if I do it this huh. way? And what if I do it this way? Cause you have to, there's something about the doors and walking through a retail store from a restaurant it, with Vermont liquor laws. So anyway, I kept asking questions and finally he was like, well, you could do that. Huh. I said, all right, I'm going to do that. Do you, is this like a highly guarded secret or what, which fine if it is, no, but they, what was the I liquor remember. laws in states are the weirdest freaking right. thing. So they've actually shifted it. I was part of some legislation that changed how um, that works. And so now it's more possible to do that. But basically you have to have different entrances um, into and out of a class one versus a class three license. There's a lot of they're very antiquated laws. Um, so it kind of doesn't really make sense, but it's a control thing. Um, and we were just able to use the entryway of the, of the space as a neutral territory. So the retail store in my first space had kind of a cage around it that you walked out of after checking out, you just walked out the door. The gray area. (laughs) The gray area. So the inspiration to open cork originally is because you were hanging out in california and we're like look people can have a restaurant and a wine shop specifically yes there's more fluidity in the liquor licenses there so 
really the inspiration was um, there was this cool little wine shop in Truckee and um, you could go into this shop and pick a bottle of wine off the shelf and open it and sit at the bar. Gotcha. And I thought, how cool these are. This is the ability to pay retail for a wine and sit at a bar and drink it. Mm -hmm. So it makes the accessibility better. It's more cost of cost effective to the consumer. Yeah. Um, when I came into town and did my business plan, I didn't fully get do that whole model. Um, we charged a little bit more above that. For example, the retail cost plus a corkage fee of $10. So our, say, a retail $20 bottle of wine, you could sit at the bar and drink it for $30 a bottle. Um, so it it added a little bit more for the overhead of running the bar, for instance. <laughs> There's a lot of like scare quotes flying around in the air right now, just uh, in case our <laughs> listeners wanted to know. Um, Katie, yeah. was Danielle cool to you when you were growing up? Like, oh, she was awesome. She was. Yeah. Cool older sister, yeah. not mean older the sister. Coolest. The yeah. coolest. It was huh. pretty fun when I lived in California. I spent two summers out there with her. I would drive out there for um, holidays and breaks off of, off of school. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, but big age difference. So, you know, I was, she was in college and yeah. I was a little kid at home. Yeah. We have a sister in between us. Gotcha. We got to talk skiing for just a minute. It was a very truth in advertising kind of assessment, unless she was <laughs> sort of sandbagging and being overly humble. She described herself. She's like, look, I'm a fair weather skier. Danielle, does that actually... I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I like Definitely. that. Like we, the, yeah. in our, like the conversations we're usually having at Blister, you don't hear that a lot. Yeah. It's like, you know what? I like skiing when it's nice out. Yeah. I yeah. think, and I, and this is not a, a slam to our parents, but they're, you know, they're 14 years difference from my older brother, who's 13 months older than me to Katie, that they, they were tired. So when ski racing was a choice and Katie said, no way, uh -huh. they were said, they cool. said fine, yeah. whereas, <laughs> no problem. Whereas you... We didn't have a choice. Yeah. We went skiing every weekend. And that's great. That was great for me. And I ski raced through high school. Um, so it was, it was very much my lifestyle. Um, but the two younger sisters um, are more recreational skiers. Recreational skiers. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No, it's fine. Yeah. Um, so you ski raced through high school and then were in the Truckee Tahoe area as a ski race coach. Yes. For like 10 years? Yes. Yeah. I, I graduated from uh, UVM. I coached a little at Mount Mansfield Ski Club. While I was at UVM, I moved to Boston to work for a mutual fund company, which wasn't really that seems like great you, for me. Yeah, from what I know, you, Wearing, that seems um, like a perfect high fit. heels and a suit and um, going into an office building <laughs> was not my jam. <laughs> so I bought a one-way ticket to California, and uh, timing-wise, it was a little interesting. It was a month after September 11th, unplanned, but obviously uh, the world shifted quite a bit. So I lived in San Francisco a couple months. I couldn't really find work. And so I called my family. My brother contacted me, said I saw a job for a ski coaching position up in Tahoe and um, you should check it out. And I was like, I said, I don't want to be a ski coach. Forget it. Um, but I called up, talked to a guy, 
basically called my dad two days later. I said, ship my stuff to California. I'm going to spend a winter coaching skiing and continued on that path for 10 years and Mm. coached year round for 10 years Mm. at Sugar Bowl Academy. So what compelled you to come back to Stowe? So I met my dreamboat husband in Austria. In Austria? (laughs) Yes. In Solden, Austria at the World Cup. Um, We were there. uh, My one of my best friends from GMVS, the head coach at GMVS, Brandon Dykster House. And he said, do you want to go on a trip to Austria with GMVS? Um, It's a kind of a recruiting tool that they used. And um, I obviously said yes. And Colin was also on that trip. So we met in Solden in 2008. I went back to California. We played around for a couple years <laughs> by coastal Lee. Um, and he ultimately moved out to Truckee the Thanksgiving of 2010. We got 800 inches of snow that year. Wow. And, um, just, I was ready to be done. Mm -hmm. So done with California and just decided it was time to come home. So moved back in May of 11 and basically got to work on writing a business plan. I looked for a couple different jobs in the outdoor industry for corporation like Burton or, Mm -hmm. um, some of the businesses that were local and wasn't really finding anything I was too interested in. So I decided I was 34 and um, why not try a go at my own business and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. If I fail, then figure something else out. Yep. So started writing a business plan in May and opened in September. Wow. Yep. Okay. With the sort of restaurant slash wine mm-hmm. shop combo thing. Mm-hmm. And then fast forwarding a bit, you're like, hey, Katie, come do this thing with me. And she's like, cool, maybe, but there's one condition. Uh So let's pick this up, Katie. Uh Um, When did you first even start learning about or hearing about natural wine, which is something that we're now going to get into quite a bit here. Um, When did that sort of get on your radar? I mean, Danielle and I, I was working with her in Waterbury. Um, I was 23, probably. And at that point, there were some importers coming into the state, Matt Molo from Selectio Naturel and Zev Ravine um, of Zev Ravine Selections. Um, And they started talking to us about these wines. And I just remember tasting this wine, La Maresca Nero Capitano, and it just stuck with me. And I was like what is this? Mm. It's like frappato from the, um, from Sicily. Uh, and back then it was weird. It was like tart cherries and Mm. just a little funkiness to it. But Matt was so awesome. I got his contact and, um, and I was moving to Boston. And so I emailed him. It was like the only person I contacted and they had an opening in their wine shop at the time. Mm. So I went in, interviewed and got the job and, thought I knew about wine Mm. and quickly figured out I did not know much. Um, But the wine Bottega, and I didn't realize it at the time, but the wine Bottega really was kind of at the helm of pushing natural wine in Boston. Um, It was pretty, 
I was pretty fortunate to be working there. And so I just learned about, I just learned about natural wine down there. I mean, we were opening six bottles a week for our wine tastings on Fridays, if not more throughout the week. And just kind of talking through everything. I have no formal training in wine, but, you know, just was given the opportunity to taste. I think my second day on the job, Matt took me to New York, um, (laughs) took me to New York I have bronchitis and I went to the Dresner tasting down in New York City and I tasted so many wines we were there with um, one of these wine reps he's a staple in the industry down in Boston Roy blanking on his last name but he looked at me he's like drink this and he like gave me some Moscato or something as like a palate cleanser because I just got so overwhelmed I mean so many winemakers and and hundreds like yeah hundreds of wines it was insane but it was quite the experience. That was day two on my job, my job there. Huh. So, yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I started to really like learn about these winemakers and, you know, the people behind it. And it just, we, we, we had access to all of these kinds of wines up here. And so I thought it would be a good way to continue. Mm-hmm. So was your thinking, it's probably neither like, just A or B, but some sort of combination. But like, to what extent was it like, okay, Danielle, I'll do this with you. And I've got an actual sort of angle, you know, like what that would help differentiate what we're doing from just saying we're a wine shop. Yeah. So was this like the well-played, like businesses <laughs> should have a point of differentiation? You or, know. or was this more the like, no, the more I learned about sort of what is what we would say today is say conventional winemaking it was more about i don't i don't know why we need to be doing this um help us understand where you were i think it's a couple of couple things i first of all was 26 years old wanted to move home and but wanted to be behind something that i had a passion for and the wines that I was working for, working with down in Boston were really interesting to me. And I, I felt like I could really bring something new to the table up here. But I think I also just was like looking to get home, and mm-hmm. come back this way. But that doesn't explain why you said I will do it if we are only selling natural wine. I, f- I think you get attached to the stories Yeah, behind these wines. You meet the winemakers, you hear about why they're Why doing they, yeah. what they're doing. You're you're selling something that next year is going to be a different product yeah. that is interesting. It's changing. It there you get this sort of history, this geography, this geology. There's so much more than just this bottle of wine when it comes to these wines that we're selling. And I think there's that story is so much easier to get behind than just the um, sort of the generic mass-produced bottle of wine. So to be able to attach that meaning and interest to this product, I think makes it a much more interesting mm-hmm. wine shop or restaurant than just any other wine shop or restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at the time, too, in looking at what was around in the market, nobody else was doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and Stowe's a small town, but with a lot of tourism, yeah. 
involved. So, you know, I think I valued all the things that I had learned in Boston at the time. And, you know, those relationships that I had built, figured I could bring it here and really develop on it. Um, specifically with some of those importers, I was bringing in some of the wines that nobody else in the state carried. I was just special ordering them mm-hmm. so that we had exclusives on a lot of things, which is we still do in some of those portfolios. Hmm. All right, let's start doing it. Time to define some terms, right? Um, Danielle, you and I had a really fun conversation. Oh, I don't know. Was this like maybe a week ago? Um, but I was just like peppering, uh, peppering you with questions and you, you did real well. So I, I just think this is uh, still a new enough category to a number of people that I think helping people understand a bit more about the space um, would just be a really useful thing to do. And I think it is really interesting as you two do. So three terms I think we maybe will end up talking about and, you know, probably in and out of all three, but organic wine, natural wine, raw wine, who wants to give us our first layer of uh, explanation of these three things? And then it's probably about to get a lot more complicated or murky as we go deeper, but that's cool. We're not afraid. Um, how, like, are these synonyms, Katie? Well, the funny thing about natural wine is, you know, as you said, this kind of new thing, but it's actually not new. Natural wine is just how wines were made for years thousands of years you know like it's just you know grapes fermented and put in a bottle you know um when we're talking about organic versus natural organic is strictly an agricultural process especially in the united states um especially with usda organic certifications grapes are you know it only matters what's happening in the vineyard. Once you harvest those grapes, you can do whatever you want to them um, and add whatever chemicals you want to it. Um, In terms of natural, it's really kind of a more all encompassing, like, you know, organic preparations in the vineyards, biodynamic preparations in the vineyards with a focus on minimal intervention, you know, using less machinery, using more hand harvesting, using those native yeast, um, not inoculating the juices with, or not inoculating the grapes with um, commercial yeast. And then little to no fining or filtration, no sulfur or little amounts of sulfur dioxide. I think organics to Katie's point is exactly that. It's, it's what is done in, in the vineyard uh, at the great, the vine site. And then like she said, you know, you get the grapes into the winemaking facility and you can do whatever you want. So where people are thinking they're getting this kind of clean product, they're not necessarily. Now, and then natural, um, I think natural has morphed actually a lot since that terminology has started being talked about because it's become a trendy um product that I think people are sort of latching onto Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Um, When it boils down to it, it's organic or biodynamic. And then when the winemakers are 
making the product, there's little to no intervention. Now, some winemakers intervene a little bit. um, And because there's no regulation for this quote unquote natural wine world, there's a broad spectrum of what is natural and what level of natural it is. And I think that that's the murky Mm -hmm. sort of cloudy area that um, everybody is kind of latching onto. And, you know, now because it's, like I said, more trendy, people are saying, well, we have this natural product, but um, you can get it at the grocery store. Um, And, you know, if you are a consumer and you just trust and believe in these statements, you might not be getting what you're bargaining for. Mm-hmm. So I do think, you know, the the range is wide and the definition is broad because there is a, a lot of differentiation between certain producers and what they believe is that and and what other people believe. And then, you know, raw um, Isabel Legeron kind of coined this term and she has a um of a tasting experience that is around the world. It's a global wine tasting experience and her requirements for these winemakers to be involved are very, very, very strict. Um, So that's even one step further. Um, So raw wine is in fact where we are seeing pretty strict definitions and criteria if you for a winemaker to get that sort of i mean i wouldn't say it's like a it's for her for her for her festival that she puts on or wine tasting um those wines have to fall under you know x parts per million of sulfur they fit organic biodynamic unfined unfiltered you know, very small production. Um, but it's not like winemakers are trying to fit into a raw terminology. Okay. If that makes sense. Yep. Right. So raw wine is specifically more about a particular, we're shying away. You started to use the word festival and kind of backed up. It sounded, I was like, okay, so like a tasting event or a tasting series. Yeah. It's a, she calls it a fair. Uh, a yeah. Fair. Sorry. Raw fair. wine fair. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it's this, it's just like what we would go to for an industry tasting with an yeah. importer where all of these winemakers come in. But this is an event that um, Isabel makes available to the public. There's one in New York, one in Montreal, one in L.A., Berlin. one in Berlin, one in London, maybe. Oh, yeah. London. I think that's one where in London. Um, and the public can go. People that are interested in natural wine can go and taste these vines. Um, we've been to Montreal and New York. Yeah. And um, they're incredible because you get to try these wines. The unfortunate part of going to raw is that we can't always get these wines. So you go and you taste Mm. these amazing wines. I mean, I specifically recall tasting these wines from Greece in Montreal that I wanted so badly and we can't get them here. So um, it is a very cool experience to go and see all these producers that are abiding by these, you know, strict rules that she requires for them to be a part of it mm-hmm. um but sometimes you can't replicate that you can't get you can't go home and get that wine that's specifically an isabel thing and then you know the natural 
wine world. It's a broader, less defined realm. Yeah, I wouldn't say you have people coming in asking for, I want raw, raw wine. Yeah. No. No, Natural because wine. that is specifically a thing you'd only, it, yeah, it's part of a fair, a traveling yeah. fair. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so for those still trying to figure out the this sort of natural wine world, seems like a key term here is minimal intervention. Is that right? I mean, so like, I think that's useful, right? To start getting, letting people get a handle on like how to folks in kind of the biz talk about these things, like identify a few of the key terms. And so is that right? Minimal intervention or you have a different... Is there I mean, I would way? say I have my like my quick little elevator pitch yeah. that when people walk through the door and they say, what is natural wine? And so my my thing is that, you know, look, we we kind of we pay attention to the kinds of food we put in our body. And with wine, 56 chemicals can be added into wines that are sold on the shelves in the United States. And there's no rules or regulations or information on the label that tells you what these chemicals are. And so, um, you know, with the wines that we sell, we, um, like I said, there's a broad range of intervention. Um, some of these chemicals, um, winemakers, conventional winemakers believe are necessary to put in the wine to make them the product that they want to sell. But if you talk to other winemakers, in the more natural wine world, they believe that if you are growing a healthy vineyard with um, different crops growing amongst the vines, getting rid of bad bugs, um, bringing in healthy bugs that are making everything this sort of perfect ecosystem, that those grapes are going to grow better with more balanced sugar and acid and then they choose to pick them at a lower bricks level which is the level of sugar in the grape so that there's still acid available which results in a lower alcohol wine once it goes through the fermentation process so a lot of conventional wines will ripen the grapes to a higher bricks level to yield more sugars which then results in a bigger juicier, higher alcohol wine, which a lot of U.S. consumers love. So they're building those wines for the greater consumer, Mm -hmm. um, where I think the natural winemaker is a little bit more nuanced and trying to create a balanced wine by not adding chemicals to add acid back in or add sugar to make the fermentation process or add conventional chemically created yeast in New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs to make it taste like grapefruit, for instance. Mm. So these are things that are being used to manipulate the wines to turn into the product that they want, where in the natural wine world, they're just letting the grapes shine. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, they can strip a... They, once they have the juices, they can strip that wine down, deacidify it. Like they can do all of these things to it, strip it down, and build it back up to where they want it to be. In the in commercial what, wine, in what we're calling commercial wine. Yeah. Yep. 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 That makes sense. And I mean, this is they I manufacture think a, it, manufacture or engineer it, right? Like, Correct. Yep. Correct. And 
this is so fascinating. And I, and let me try this and we'll just see what you think of it. But hearing you talk and describe the kind of, it's a, a less engineered process versus perhaps a more engineered process on the less engineered side, as you were saying, Danielle, it's like natural winemakers might just say like, Hey, let's, let's do things sort of, <laughs> I use this phrase a lot, the right way, which is very open to interpretation, let's say here, but let's, let's try to build things in a, in a healthy ecosystem sort of way and let the grape shine, let the grapes do what the grapes are going to do. I keep thinking like it's really being openness to like, and just like see where that leads us. But on the commercial side, this is a real thing that I think any business owner needs to think about. Any producer needs to think about consumers do like consistency. Sure. Right. And this seems to be like a massive thing. If someone's listening, like, why would you add 56 chemicals to something or other? That sounds like not the thing we might want to do. They're Twinkie like, wines. Twinkie wines. Whoa. Twinkie wines. Twi- All right. I'm just going to shut up. Tell me about Twinkie wines. So all of these kind of grocery store wines, they don't vary from vintage to vintage. Like I said, you build them, you can strip them down and build them back up to be whatever you want so that they're consistent so that doesn't matter which year it is they're twinkie wines Mm -hmm. they like literally you know they taste the same they're indestructible they have so many additives in them they're not going to go bad Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. right is that true have twinkies like is a twinkie today survive the apocalypse well i know that this the shelf stability is like infinite but like, have there been, maybe we need to do a crafted podcast dedicated to the Twinkie. Yeah. Maybe, did a Twinkie. New wave Twinkies. Did a Twinkie yeah, taste Twinkies. different like 30 years ago or is it the exact same? It might be the same Twinkie from 30 years it ago. It might be. <laughs> we yeah. wouldn't know. Okay. Who knows? You know what I'm saying though? Like, yeah. was there a different formula to the Twinkie 30 years ago? Or is it just like, like yo, we landed on gold and we are not deviating <laughs> and we've created. Right. But to your point of the consumer with consistency, a Twinkie or otherwise, you have a product that people know if they buy off the shelf for $14.99 is going to be the same product every time. Mm -hmm. And they believe in that and trust in that. And that's Mm -hmm. fair. I I get that. And that's reasonable. Um, I think the sort of wine world in this country was shaped by wine people that critiqued wines and said what is good and what is not. And Uh so people Uh bought into this construct Mm -hmm. of, okay, well, this wine scored X in this test, tasting test or whatever. And so because that scored a 98, that winemaker is like, all right, well, we're going to build this every single year the same way Mm -hmm. because people love it and we can charge more for it. And of course, it's a business. Absolutely. And I don't fault people for that. You know, at the end of the day, if you want to buy that $14.99 bottle of wine on the shelf in the grocery store, because that is your comfort zone, fine. Mm-hmm. It, I, there's no right or wrong here. What I believe is good wine and what I drink on a day-to-day basis does not have to every day. But, <laughs> um, and what you drink does not have to be the same. Right. Like yeah. if you didn't like a wine that you tasted last night, that's fair. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And there's, this whole 
world, there's 10,000, over 10,000 varietals. When I lived in California as a ski coach, I drank New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc in the summer and shitty Pinot Noir in the winter that you can buy at the grocery store. And I didn't know any better and it's just what I did. And now I would never choose either of those things because there's so much more out there. And not because they're not right or good for someone. I don't like them, but that doesn't mean that I'm this, you know, expert in the field. And I wouldn't say it's, you know, kind of one way or the other. I mean, I have a friend who shops here. She drinks Lambrusco and she drinks Mayomi. You know, there's like, we have friends and clients that come in here and they they shop both avenues and that's fine. Yep. So, and again, bringing it back, there might be somebody on a given day or for a given occasion wants to grab that wine where they sort of on the more commercial side where the repeatability, the consistency is perhaps um, a higher priority in that wine making and the wine making process. And on the natural side, it's like, let's, let's, let's get open to adventure here. Let's see what we're doing. And, and I think, you know, when you're talking about the scoring systems on wine where it's like, oh my God, you got the right you know, you got the cool kids vineyard, but the wrong year, Ugh, right. you simpleton to <laughs> instead, I think the world you're describing is to start getting more familiar with a particular wine maker and that wine makers approach. How are they operating in general? And I mean, this certainly happens in the commercial wine world as well, I think, um, for certain people. And some of the things we're hoping to do in this whole crafted series is like encourage this, but figure out like who is manufacturing the stuff you're buying. And maybe on the natural side, it's like, oh my God, these people or this company is amazing and I love their approach to wine or how they talk about it and their processes, wherever they are on the spectrum of minimal, a little less minimal, a little more minimal intervention. And maybe you just start to like develop a relationship with that brand. And then the bottle might be a little bit of a surprise every time. It's not going to be the exact same, you know, cup of coffee as it were. Is that right? I mean, is that how we're thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, working with some of the winemakers that we do, you know, it it does vary vintage to vintage, especially in this day and age. Climate change is really affecting these winemakers. You're seeing, you know, crazy hot summers and sometimes they're getting a ton of fruit and it's a much, you know, riper vintage and sometimes they're having a cooler summer. And, um, you know, so every vintage is, it varies drastically um and so it kind of gives you insight into what these winemakers what is happening in their vineyards every year and i i like i think that's the fun part of it is seeing you know how each wine can vary over the different years that's that's why you almost have um that's why you can do verticals too of different vintages and try them you know up against each other when we get customers that come in the door that see wine shop they come in and then i usually explain that you're probably not going to see labels that you recognize this is what we do all the wines in here are natural and this is what that means if you need help just let us know or if you want to wander around Um, and i think there's always something that we can put 
you know, for those people that say, I like Pinot Noir mm-hmm. or I drink Pinot Noir, yep. we can direct them to a wine that I can very comfortably say, if you like Pinot Noir, here's something fun that you can try. I can sell you a Pinot Noir or I can sell you this Gamay or this Trollinger or, you know, any number of other wines that we have on the shelf over there that is going to potentially push you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but make you still feel okay about what you got. And I think that's the key is, you know, like I said, there's no right or wrong, but it's the willingness to go outside of the box a little Mm -hmm. bit. And that's where, you know, Katie or um, some of the other people that work here at Cork can help handhold a little bit. Mm -hmm. And those wines, because they're quote unquote natural, don't have to be weird or Mm -hmm. different. Some people come in looking for weird and different. And and for the most part, we we really don't stock like funky yeah super weird wines i just don't have a huge market for it and you know i want stuff to be approachable and that's always been that's always been the point is to make wine approachable and to have fun with it and you know every palette is different and there's so many there's so many different varieties to choose from and the whole goal is to just like try new things yep yeah honestly when i came in for dinner last night um didn't tell you guys that i was doing that by the way but uh, when I came in, honestly, that was a big question I had. Like, I was like, how weird are we about to get here? You know? Mm-hmm. And um, I would say, um, and Deidre was great. Um, and she asked, like, what do you like to drink? You know, what do you normally drink? That kind of thing. And we kind of started there. And But I was like, honestly, I kind of want to, like, sample kind of a range so um i sampled uh, i did not have seven glasses of wine last <laughs> night but i tried seven wines last night and yeah I, I just think for people who are like dude this is a big new world you all are talking about to me um everything i had here was to use your word quite approachable there was quite a bit of like family resemblance to mm-hmm. to a pinot um to a bigger wine and um but yeah, like you said, like some familiarity, but maybe just move in a little bit in a different direction. And that stuff's fun, right? I mean, that's just exploring this whole category of wine uh, in ways that um, like, yeah, if you're if you like exploration, well, here you go. And I think to that point, what is approachable, um, you know, we saw I think we talked about when we had a phone call a couple of weeks ago, um, I think people are making natural wine better now as well. So it is Mm. cleaner. Mm. It is more um, approachable. Whereas seven to 10 years ago, wines were being made that had a little bit more funkiness and people were, people were into that. Mm. Um, But those are flaws in the wine for sure. And they're kind of, capitalizing on those flaws which is neither here nor there Mm -hmm. it's just a thing which maybe makes it a little bit more unapproachable to some clientele Mm -hmm. um but i i have to say it's very rare that we get that very funky wine Mm -hmm. in our glass when we're tasting these days it's just people aren't really 
making wine that way as much anymore. Um, I think they're just trying to make it more. When you're seeing a few of the and younger winemakers really dial in their winemaking process mm-hmm. too. You know, even um, you know, some of our local winemakers just in the last five years just kind of shifted and things are just a little bit more focused. Hmm. Interesting. And if someone were to come into Cork for dinner, we haven't even talked about the food side of Cork, which is kind of <laughs> ironic because when I told some friends, like, this really is all about the wine. It's all about the wine. We never wanted to be a restaurant. But the irony <laughs> is when I was like, I'm going to dinner at Cork and friends were like, that's my favorite restaurant, like in Stowe. Like I got this actually a lot. <laughs> and I was like, I kind of mostly was going for the wine. Mm. So, okay. So it's wine first for you. You just happen to be doing the food thing well. I'd say it's wine first for us. For We've you. We've definitely totally. gotten a... But, but, but as kind of a, um, as kind of a platform to jump sure. off, right? So we started out as more of a wine bar with small plates and then had a chef come in and say, how do you feel about being a full restaurant? Huh. I didn't want to be a full restaurant. Uh-huh. And then he kind of took us in that direction, which what we realized, I think, very quickly was that kept people in seats longer and we could get more wine in their gotcha. glass. Yep. So, you know, it was sort of a, a, a evangelization program, um, you know, and and for me, if we're going to offer food and have it be a full restaurant, I wanted it to be really good food. Mm. So the key is to have really good food and then to be able to talk about wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, of course, it's not maybe that way for everyone that comes through the door. You know, they look and it's American bistro farm table kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's a vessel for opening people's minds up about wine mm-hmm. and just trying to educate and, and get people to push outside of their comfort zone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where should people go to learn more about Cork? Learn more about what you're up to on the wine side of things, maybe schedule a reservation. So we have a website um, that is has all sorts of information on it, um, corkvt.com. We have um, a wine club that is monthly. Um, we do tastings every other week right now. That's more of a summer program because we do them on the patio. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll keep doing that through the winter, but um, the space is pretty small. Um, and uh, social media, huh? social media. And then we're on Instagram and Facebook. Cork VT. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> hey, but say more about the wine club because now that people have had a chance to hear the two of you talk about this, well, and I'll ask a question, Katie: Are you vetting first? Things that are going through, like being sent out through the wine club, like always. How, always, she got real serious right there. Look, did you see that face? She's the picker. That was the most serious the, the wine picker. The wine picker. Okay, okay. Yes. So these yeah. are things that <laughs> got vetted by Everything, Katie. I won't yes. say in a scary way, even though that was like a minute there where I would not mess scary. with you. Um, so these are things you vetted, things that you think are like people are going to be into this. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. Yeah. So, but just say a bit more about this then. Yeah. So we have our crush club and our rock club. Um, they're both two bottles a month. The crush is $40 a month. The raw is 70 and you can get both for a hundred. Um, basically it's just wines that are, you know, the $40 are roughly around 20 bucks on the shelf. 
the raw club is, you know, kind of the $35 and up, you know, a little bit more rare and smaller production stuff that um, we get. Sometimes I just only bring in like the one case of them. Um, But basically it's just, I try to give them themes because I really like to, especially for the people that get both clubs, I really like to kind of showcase one general theme. Um, But basically we do write-ups and it's a rolling subscription and yeah, they all fit into the program. We select whichever style we choose for the month. You know, this last month we did um, Rosato. So we did all Italian rosés specifically featuring one producer with two different rosés they they make Hmm. um, and then two other Italian rosés. So, yeah. Okay, so if somebody wanted to subscribe to the Wine Club... They go to our website. Go to the website. What's your website, Danielle? It's (laughs) www.corkvt.com. That was very very confidently (laughs) said. Good. Um, We, We can ship, but shipping definitely is cost prohibitive and you can't ship to all states gotcha and we don't we the shipping model we haven't rolled into the cost so we have to charge for that it's it just doesn't work i think mm-hmm. more and more people are realizing that turns out shipping is not free yeah. you know we actually used to know that and then that got changed for some reasons that i think are obvious so i think that's i i just think people buying stuff are like right there's massive costs associated with especially shipping bottles Bottles. heavy bottles around the world so um anyway if you're interested danielle and katie these would be the people vetting your wine selections and i think just doing the fun of like opening up this world uh of natural wines yeah and to that point, we are here in tiny little Stowe, Vermont mm-hmm. doing this. Um, there are tiny little versions of cork in mm-hmm. towns all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there we we ha- we know people in lots of different states doing similar things. And I think finding that wine shop that if you do have interest in natural wine, the wine shop that you can go in and trust the person making the selections to give you some direction within the price point you're comfortable with um, goes a long way Hmm. Um, because I think that's really what it comes down to is the experience and if you can get a little of the story that that makes it even more special you know a lot of these winemakers that we represent we've been to their places in different countries you what I visited one on my honeymoon That's awesome. So, and, and this, and then we tell stories about it. And I think that changes the experience. It's not like you're just buying this $20 bottle of wine. You're getting this, oh, this, we were there and there was a guy hand carving prosciutto while we're tasting wines and the grandma made hand rolled spaghetti Mm. as we're eating it (laughs) covered in the olive oil that they pressed out of their olive trees you know so i think people can once you connect those dots that changes the what that little bottle of wine is for everyone where you can't say that about your grocery store you know whatever yellowtail or barefoot or we do we do get that a lot too you know being a tourist town people come in here and they get really excited about what we're doing and they're like okay well how do i find these wines where i live 
like it's it's tricky not every state is is not every shop has these kinds of wines but really looking at the import label i think is a good way to trust Hmm. um for what you're getting so you know louis dresner jenny and francois kermit lynch selectio naturel selection massal selection say la vigna and zevravine those are all like great ones to start with so you know that if that is on the label that you can trust that those wines are also falling into that quote-unquote criteria it to a certain level Mm -hmm. that was all really well said and really helpful but that notion and i mean this is why i think we do love things like wine is like you said danielle that bottle starts to represent this entire history this entire place this entire process grandma rolling you know handmade spaghetti i mean that's when this stuff really starts to open up and just be a lot different than like well this one got a 98 and that was a 94 so i guess we go with this one and again hopefully that's something that we can do through this series is kind of just open up all of these worlds to people and and you know myself included absolutely right like it's so fun to dive into this stuff and one step further than the story i mean i think i said that earlier about the the history the geography the geology right the wines that are less manipulated the loire valley you know the it sits on an oyster bed from the jurassic period kimmerigian soil soil. so you get this salinity and sort of slaty quality minerality in these wines that um that only the grapes that grow there you know it's a very you get this sense of place when you taste these wines from certain parts of the world Mount Etna, wines that grow in Sicily, you know, that those, those wines come with just, there's so much complexity to them that is not stripped down. They don't take that out. It's like comes from that, that part of the world. And that I think is also something that is, makes them so special. And that's, I think a big focus for a lot of winemakers, especially coming out of, um, California these days is um, people really trying to focus on sense of place mm-hmm. and focus on um, really showcasing what the variety should be and not what it um, what it could be. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's interve- intervened with with a lot of oak and all of that stuff. Yep. The wines from Cole Capretta, um, for me, those wines. You know, we got to visit that estate, but when those wines landed in the U.S., I was one of the first people to unpack them. Like I unpacked bottle number one of 219 of the Il Forestiero. I did not get to keep that bottle, Matt Molo. But, um, you know, that was like a really meaningful moment for me. And just to see those wines and how they've evolved over the last, you know, five, six years since Annalisa has kind of taken the winemaking by the reins. Um, it's been really wonderful to watch. Mm. That's why we, you know, love working with these kinds of wines. Hmm. It's very cool. The family stories. Speaking of family story, <laughs> um, who just walked in here? Grandpa. Dad. Our dad. dad. He comes every day. He waters the plants. He folds napkins almost every day. Um, he He's a fixture. He's just pulled out the hose. <laughs> it's very helpful. <laughs> Another family affair. He... Uh, he was a ski instructor at Stowe for 40, 
four years. Wow. Mm -hmm. If if you didn't have to go right now, Danielle, we would 100% pull him into this. (laughs) Yeah, that's questionable. (laughs) No, he's great. He's very supportive. Always has been. Loves talking up Cork everywhere he goes. Ah. um, Which is Yeah, he's free advertisers. Yes. He goes to the gym every day and probably two to three groups a day come in here because they've met John Nichols at the pool. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Wow. That's, um, I don't know if we call that native advertising or just familial advertising, (laughs) but. Gorilla. Gorilla advertising. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Well, it, yeah, quite, quite appropriate as you're going in and talking about the kind of family, Family. the familial operations of many of these wineries. And it's like, well, we got one. It sounds like uh, happening right here at Cork (laughs) turns out. So thank you too. Uh, this has been really great. And, uh, I think you have just put a lot of information in front of a lot of people who, uh, like myself, um, this is kind of a, a newer world that we're hearing about, which again, turns out is an extremely old world and way of doing right. things. And yeah, to be continued, I, I, I yeah. you know, back to the, back to the point about, you know, I, wine in general loves to talk about at the commercial level its heritage and the rest always it's with wine it's all about old right and so it's very interesting to hear about like a more minimalist intervention approach to things that is actually closer to older forms of production and um we're gonna see how this all evolves but i have no doubt that uh this isn't just some little weird niche thing or a passing fad. Like this is just going to become a bigger part of uh, what it means to understand wine, think about wine, and I think probably purchase wine too. And I think, you know, in the hour that we've been talking, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, really fun to be here with you too and and, uh, get to see this and dinner last night and and, uh, this has been really fun today too. So thanks for all of it. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks so much to Danielle and Katie for the conversation. And do be sure to get yourself a reservation at Cork the next time you are heading to Stowe, Vermont. And also check out their website, corkvt.com and subscribe to the Cork subscription. You can then sample some of the wines that Katie herself has selected because after listening to this conversation, don't you want to try some natural wines that Katie selected for this club? Me too. All right, so again, that's corkvt.com. Now, of course, I also want to thank our strikingly handsome podcast producer, Justin Bob, for, well, producing this episode. And if you have enjoyed these initial conversations in this new Crafted podcast, it would really mean a lot to us and it would help the cause if you would take just a minute and leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and just let us know that you are liking what we've got going here. So do please leave us that rating or review and then take good care of yourself and everybody else 
And we will be talking to you later this week on Blister over on our other podcasts. Then catch you right back here next Wednesday on Crafted for another exceptional conversation with one of our favorite artists. Going to leave it at that for now. You'll find out next week who it is. So we'll catch you next week on Crafted. Crafted.